Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O my Lord and my Redeemer. One of the richest and most challenging aspects of Christianity is its dependence on paradox. He who would be first shall be last. He who would save his life must lose it. I believe that these paradoxes are so rich, so deep in their implications for the meaning of reality and for how we should lead our lives that we should never stop reflecting on them. So I bring one today for our consideration. On the one hand, we are told that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. On the other hand, we are told that God is love. How can, why should we fear a God who is defined by his infinite love for us? The answer, I believe, is to be found in the theme that dominated our inauguration weekend, the theme of vocation or of calling. Over and over again during that weekend, we heard that uniquely Lutheran notion of vocation, that all work in the world is for the greater glory of God, that all work is to be done in his name and in the greatest possible imitation of the life of our Lord. I will return to this idea later, the necessity of treating your calling as an opportunity to love others as I have loved you. But first I want to look at the idea of calling itself. What a remarkable idea that there is a God so loving, so personally invested in each of us that he would call me to do this or that. This requires what Rabbi Weissman referred to last week as believing and acting in perfect faith. In perfect faith, we believe that this infinitely loving God will always call us to do the best possible thing. But this is not an entirely comforting thought. For doing the best possible thing is not a guarantee of physical safety professional advancement, or economic profit. In fact, doing the best possible thing will often provoke retaliation by the world. But let us courageously pursue this idea of calling and see where it leads us. Consider prayer as a source of calling. Traditionally, we have divided prayer into three categories, praise, thanksgiving, and petition. Our first hymn this morning was a prayer of praise and thanksgiving. Our second hymn will be a prayer of petition. When we petition God for something, when we come as supplicants, if we come in perfect faith, we believe that every prayer is answered, and answered in an infinitely loving way. Sometimes the answer is yes and sometimes no, but in either case, In perfect faith, we believe the response to be the loving response. Consider the entirely human response of the person whose desperate prayer of petition, that he be spared some terrible injustice, that the life of a loved one be saved, that he be removed from some horrific oppression, has been answered with a no, 
at a time like that to overcome disappointment and sadness and grief, to say with our Lord, not my will but thine be done, requires an act of faith, an act of faith. God's answers to our prayers of petition are a kind of calling. If we believe in perfect faith that an infinitely loving God will always respond to our prayers of petition in the perfectly loving way, then we are called to accept the answer. Let's look at another kind of calling. Recently I was sent one of those run-around-the-web stories. Um, Usually I would hit delete, but this was sent by someone for whom I have a great deal of admiration and affection, and so I read it. The story is told by the father of a seriously impaired boy, Shay. As you listen to the story, think about who is being called and to do what. Here's the father's story. Shay and I had walked past a park where some boys Shay knew were playing baseball. Shay asked, do you think they'll let me play? I knew that most of the boys would not want someone like Shay on their team. But as a father, I also understood that if my son were allowed to play, it would give him a much-needed sense of belonging and some confidence to be accepted by others in spite of his handicaps. I approached one of the boys on the field and asked, not expecting much, if Shea could play. The boy looked around for guidance and then said, we're losing by six runs and the game is in the eighth inning. I guess he can be on our team, and we'll try to put him into bat in the ninth inning. Shea struggled over to the team's bench and, with a broad smile, put on a team shirt. In the bottom of the eighth inning, Shea's team scored a few runs but was still behind by three. In the top of the ninth inning, Shea put on a glove and played in right field. Even though no hits came his way, he was obviously ecstatic just to be in the game and on the field, grinning from ear to ear, as I waved to him from the stands. In the bottom of the ninth inning, Shea's team scored again. Now with two outs and the bases loaded, the potential winning run was on base and Shea was scheduled to be next at bat. At this juncture, do they let Shea bat and give away their chance to win the game? Surprisingly, Shea was given the bat. Everyone knew that a hit was all but impossible because Shea didn't even know how to hold the bat properly, much less connect with the ball. However, as Shea stepped up to the plate, the pitcher, recognizing that the other team was putting winning aside for this moment in Shea's life, moved in a few steps to lob the ball in softly so Shea could at least make contact. The first pitch came and Shea swung clumsily and missed. The pitcher again took a few steps forward to toss the ball softly towards Shea. As the pitch came in, Shea swung at the ball and hit a slow grounder right back to the pitcher. The game would now be over. The pitcher picked up the soft ground ball and could easily have thrown the ball to the first baseman. Shea would have been out, and that would have been the end of the game. Instead, the pitcher threw the ball over the first baseman's head, out of reach, of everyone. Everyone from the stands and both teams started yelling, Shea, run to first, run to first. Never in his life had Shea run that far, but he made it to first base. 
He scampered down the baseline, wide-eyed and startled. Everyone yelled, run to second, run to second. Catching his breath, Shea awkwardly ran toward second, gleaming and struggling to make it to the base. By the time Shea headed toward second base, the right fielder had the ball. The smallest guy on their team, who now had his first chance to be the hero for his team. He could have thrown the ball to the second baseman for the tag, but he understood the pitcher's intentions. So he, too, intentionally threw the ball high and far over the third baseman's head. Shea ran toward third base deliriously as the runners ahead of him circled the bases. All were screaming, Shea, 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 all the way, Shea. Shea reached third base because the opposing shortstop ran to help him by turning him in the right direction and shouting, run to third, Shea, run to third. As Shea rounded third, the boys from both teams and the spectators were on their feet screaming, Shea, run home, run home. Shea ran to home, stepped on the plate, and was cheered as the hero who hit the grand slam and won the game for his team. The father finishes by saying, that day the boys from both teams helped bring a piece of true love and humanity into this world. And this is his coda. Shea didn't make it to another summer. He died that winter, having never forgotten being the hero and making me so happy and coming home and seeing his mother tearfully embrace her little hero of the day. This was sent to me with the heading, This Brought a Tear to My Eye and Joy to My Heart, and I'm sure that sums up the response of everyone here. To a great extent, we respond that way because we are happy for Shay, but there's something deeper here, too. We respond that way because we are happy for, even proud of, all the people who acted in love, who overcame their reluctance and chose to put the other first. The father took a chance. The boys could easily have refused to let Shea play. They could have chosen to win or to finally get to make a play. Or, and for those of us who love baseball, this is no small thing, just to play the game the right way. None of these considerations was more important than acting in love. So we hear this story And we are happy for Shea, but we are also encouraged by the example of those who heard the call and answered with a simple yes. The father was called, the boys were called, and all went. What is the lesson? That God's calling, God's blessing, God's grace is always present, and that we should act in perfect faith and say yes. But there are also cautionary tales of those who failed to say yes. One of the most human New Testament passages is from Mark, the story of the rich young man. I admit that I'm playing a little fast and loose with the text, so I ask your forbearance. Because he was a rich young man, he had not bothered to be there for the public presentations, but rushed up just as Jesus was about to leave on a journey, demanding, as the rich are wont to do, 
that Jesus pay attention to him right now. The rich young man asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What I hear in this is entitlement. Tell me what I want to know and tell me now. Because Jesus loved him and because he knew the young man's heart, he tried to put him off, advising him just to follow the law. But the rich young man, full of foolish self-importance, responded with the biblical version of blah, blah, blah. I want the real stuff, the inside stuff. And Mark says, Jesus looked steadily at him and loved him because he knew what would happen. And Jesus said, because he couldn't avoid it, There is one thing that you lack. Go and sell everything you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And Mark continues, But the young man's face fell at these words, and he went away sad, for he was a man of great wealth. Many times, Many, many times to be called puts us in deep conflict with things that are very important to us. Wealth, power, prestige, reputation, popularity, safety, security. Which gets us back to the paradox with which we started, fear of an infinitely loving Lord. If we see ourselves not, as someone said, as human beings having a spiritual experience, but as spiritual beings having a human experience, then each one of these moments matters. I don't pretend to know exactly how they matter. Questions of eternal salvation or damnation are way beyond my pay grade. But they do matter. They matter in the same way that cheating in the big game matters, in the same way that lying to your wife matters, in the same way that treating your subordinates with anything less than the respect they deserve matters. A friend and colleague, a rabbi in the Orthodox branch of Judaism, has come to the conclusion that the best way to understand the God of the Bible is as a teacher informing, explaining, challenging, patiently supporting, always pushing us in exactly the right way, but always pushing. Who would not fear such a Lord? This is scary stuff. So many chances for failure, for rejection by the world, or worse. Only if we accept his love for us, accept it in humility and in perfect faith, can we not be afraid. Which is, of course, exactly what our Lord taught us. Perfect love casts out fear. Which gets us back, finally, to the notion of vocation, of doing what we do in the world in the best possible way to the greater glory of God 
in the best possible imitation of the Christ. Most, perhaps all of us in this room, have been called to some form of leadership. Some forms include a title, but title or no, by virtue of who and what we are, we daily face the obligations of leadership. If in our roles as leaders we can act in perfect faith, then we will eschew that which is merely expedient or pleases the powerful or keeps the customer satisfied or maintains one's popularity or is boastful or conceited. If we can act in perfect faith, if we truly see what we do as leaders as vocation, then we will focus on doing the right thing in the right way at the right time, believing that things will work out the way they should. What is the right way? To love one another as I have loved you. As Paul makes specific and explicit, to act in love is to be patient and kind. To act in love is never to be boastful or conceited, never to be rude or selfish. Love takes no pleasure in the faults of others, but delights in the truth. Love is always ready to excuse, to trust, to hope, to endure whatever comes. Self-importance is the great sin of our age. The Lutheran commitment to vocation, to treating whatever we do as an obligation to do the will of God for the greater glory of God, is a powerful corrective. Although, Lord knows, it ain't easy. As we sing our second hymn, let us ask our infinitely loving God to protect us from peril of all kinds. Especially let us ask his blessings on our dear friend and longtime colleague, Jim Mahler, who is close to going home to be with his Lord. But as we go forth from this place, let us constantly ask for God's grace in the full knowledge that such blessings may bring challenge as well as opportunity, and to ask especially for the courage to accept God's grace when it comes. Let us ask for God's grace to help us, whatever our circumstances, to act as the baseball-playing boys did and not as the rich young man did. And most especially, let us ask for the grace to act in our roles as leaders in the world with the courage to do the right thing, no matter the temptations not to. Let us pray. O Lord, from whom all good things do come, grant to us, your humble servants, that by your holy inspiration we may think those things that are good and by your merciful guiding may perform the same. This we ask you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.